With the release of the book Saints last year, the study of church history officially moved beyond the dusty cobwebs of the church history library and the podiums of sparsely attended academic conferences to the nightstands of members worldwide. Suddenly, we were talking about a more complex narrative than had been rehearsed in our Sunday meetings. But was this change really sudden? J.B. Hawes, Associate Dean of BYU's College of Religious Education, believes this interest has been growing for many years. In 2017, guest podcaster Tonalyn Rutherford interviewed Dr. Hawes about his research on what he sees as a seminal moment in the study of Latter-day Saint history. He traces the origins of this new trend and speculates why this moment has been so much more successful than a similar increase in interest during the 1970s. Their discussion identifies key players in architecting a movement that will shape how a new generation of saints approach Latter-day Saint history. Please note that this interview was conducted before members were asked to use terms other than Mormon and Mormonism when referring to the church, and no disrespect is intended. Now please enjoy Tonalyn Rutherford and J.B. Hawes discussing the recent study of Latter-day Saints. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hi, this is Tana Lynn Rutherford, and I'm here with J.B. Haas on LDS Perspectives podcast today. Welcome, J.B. Thanks, Talyn. It's a pleasure to be here. I just let me introduce you. Uh, J.B. is an associate professor of church history and doctrine at BYU. He's the author of The Mormon Image in the American Mind, 50 Years of Public Perception. His Ph.D. from the University of Utah is in American History. His research interests center on the place of Mormonism in the religious and cultural landscape of the 20th and 21st century America. As for his interest in history generally, he asks, how could you not be interested in history when you come from a place that in pioneer times Utah was known as Muskrat Springs? <laughs> now, well said. Well put. <laughs> now Hooper, Utah. And you pronounced that beautifully, Tunnel. Well <laughs> Thank like you. Like a native. <laughs> He is also the coordinator of BYU's Office of Religious Outreach, with which focuses on academic interfaith dialogue. He and his wife, Laura, are the parents of three boys and a daughter. So we're happy to have him. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about a presentation that JB gave last April at the Reason for Hope conference sponsored by the Wheatley Institution at BYU. JB, can you give us some background both on that talk as well as just the, in general, the Reason for Hope conference and a little bit about the Wheatley Institute? Sure. I, I think, uh, f- from what I understand, I think the, the Reason for Hope conference grew out of the Wheatley Institute's thinking about, about how to, uh, how to think about things that are current and relevant um, from a position of faith, and uh, and to to bring to bear um, our academic disciplines, um, reason, uh, 
and, and to see you know how those two things can be complementary and um, and and supportive. And so I, I think in the the couple of conferences they've done, they've had some really interesting topics, um, some uh, some really fantastic talks. And I, my sense is it will probably be an ongoing project. Um, right. It seems like they're doing them one every semester. Right. Fantastic. Talk to us about a little bit about how um, the topic of your speech was LDS Church History, Official, Transparent, and More Interesting Than Ever. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, where that comes from and the, maybe the broader project that you're working on in that regard? LDS history has become maybe more than ever before uh, a site of a lot of exciting discoveries and, and developments recently, but also something of a battleground. And um, so I've been interested in, in what has changed in the doing of Mormon history over the last 40 years or so, uh, what it feels like to be doing history, what it feels like to um, be reading LDS history, what it feels like to... Uh, be be learning in in church classes, church university settings, and elsewhere. Interested in how did we get to this place where we are now? I guess one way to sort of bookend that interest is to say, how did we go from the early 1980s when Leonard Arrington's history division was shut down, um, was transferred? The historians who worked with Leonard Arrington, most of them found positions at other institutions. Many of them came to BYU. And the church pulled back officially from uh, its history division being a researching and publishing arm to concentrate more on just continuing the archival work to where we are now when the church again is involved in such robust publishing endeavors and some really remarkable uh, historical research. Uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, the, the church is, is working as a vanguard institution when it comes to LDS history. And so I think that it's interesting to think, how did we go from pulling back, being a little defensive, to the point where now we're, where transparency is the, is the watchword? Fantastic. And I want to hear more about, because you trace that history. You do a, a wonderful overview of that that I think will be helpful for our listeners. Would you begin your talk with a metaphor? that I would love you to revisit on teenage insecurity that speaks to us all. Would you just talk about that? You bet. Uh, there might be one thing that I'm the world expert on, and that's teenage insecurity. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I feel like I could draw on my expertise here. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I, as, I've, as I've thought about um, what it feels like, I mean, just sort of this, this transition or this, this, uh, this time period where, we're, where we are, it, that, that's just the analogy that came to my mind. Um, I think all of us can relate. I, that's the thing I like about this is it's, it has this universal sort of uh, component to it that when we're teenagers, um, we're, we just seem to be so worried about showing any signs of weakness, any any signs of, of, of our own sort of frailties and failings because – you know, we're just so concerned about having other people heap on additional, uh, <laughs> you know, additional um, support of the things we all know so well we can see in ourselves. Right. And so it's, so because of that, I think we are really concerned about um, our putting our best face forward, best foot forward, putting on the best face, this idea of, of not admitting any weakness. Um, 
And I, I also was just struck, this was true in my own life, that so often, um, you know, when you feel abused or sort of overlooked by the A crowd or, or maybe, you know, the A crowd insults you as a teenager, I can just hear my mom saying, oh, well, they're just insecure. That's why they're, you know, they're bullies or that's why they're, uh, you know, they're putting <laughs> other people down. And, you know, as a teenager, you think, oh, yeah, right. What would they have to be insecure about? But as we look back, we think, you know what? Our moms were probably right. Everyone feels this. All and, of us. And, right. and so, so often we try to cover for our insecurities with bravado or, or, or even, you know, again, just that sense of not admitting to any weaknesses or failings because we don't want that to be compounded by, you know, other people, uh, their, their awareness of, of what we're struggling with. But then somehow it almost just seems magically overnight. The phrase that just keeps echoing in my mind is we become comfortable in our own skin. We are okay with who we are, and so we are willing to admit where we have strengths and where we don't and, and what, what we need to learn. And that's, that seems to be such a crucial component in, in this beautiful um, maturing that, that is life. And I, I think that in some ways that seems to be what's happening as, as a church, as a people, is that... Uh, there was understandable defensiveness, um, and I, I really want to stress, I think it is understandable. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah. it, to think about what had been sort of heaped on the church right. uh, in, right. in so many ways, and especially for for earlier generations who had grown up with um, in, in, in a world and in atmospheres that are hard for us to sometimes recapture. Right. I think defensiveness was the order of the day, and, and there was concern about what self admissions of right. Right. of uh of weakness and failings could could invoke from others but then i i think we as we've kind of grown and and, and matured and and uh come to a place an important place of the of the right kind of self confidence we've recognized that um we have nothing to be afraid of um we can be comfortable yeah. in our own skin and that doesn't yeah. detract from all the good things that are going on that is extremely helpful. I, th- I appreciate that metaphor. At this point, can, we, can you just go over some of those for perhaps our listeners who aren't aware of that, maybe um, trace that history from the early 70s through to today in terms of what's happened and what's caused that, right? What, what has brought about that maturity and, and the comfortableness in our own skin? Yeah, Great. I think it is important to acknowledge that um, for all that we're celebrating now, and it really is worth celebrating, I think, in what's happening in, in Mormon history circles, uh, this is not the first period of that that kind of professionalization and right. openness. Right. And uh, in the early 1970s, the, the church made some remarkable moves. This was a time where a lot of things in the church were being professionalized and um, there there was this emphasis on bringing in skilled individuals who could modernize and, and, and help the church in its administration. And that happened in, in the historical enterprise as well. And so for the first time, uh, Leonard Arrington, a PhD, for the first time a PhD holding um, scholar came in to lead the history division and, and Leonard Arrington was named the church historian and then brought in two assistants who also held PhDs and then eventually built around him this cadre of, of really capable scholars and graduate students. And uh, they they took very seriously, and I, th- I think they felt it a sacred charge to, to research and write and to um, really 
help bring about an important awareness of the, the church's history for its members and for the world alike. I think this is really captured beautifully in two sort of parallel projects that um, they they set out to, to write um, two one-volume histories of the church, one that was intended more primarily for members of the church. That's the story of the Latter-day Saints, right. James Allen and Glenn Leonard. Right. And then one that was meant for academic libraries and the Mormon experience, uh, Leonard Arrington and Davis Bitten. And I, I think those two books really capture the the, the power and the promise of, of this new division. Yes, important today as well. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah exactly. And they were prolific, really prolific in, in terms of um, journal articles and, and chapters and monographs. I mean, this was, this was an exciting time. But I, I think f- for a number of reasons, it uh, it maybe was ahead of its time. Um, also, there there are all kinds of complicating factors. I think about the availability of of good information, um, the the perhaps communication with uh, with their supervisors in church hierarchy or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe as some some good historians, Greg Prince, for example, pointed out some naivete on the part of, of these historians. Um, some perhaps some some uh, missing groundwork might be a way of saying it. Uh, and 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 the world was different. The, the church was different. Right. The church leadership was different. So for all of those reasons, and you know, in all the complexity that that every story is, uh, there were a number of high-ranking church authorities who were uncomfortable with the direction of this, mm-hmm. some of this publishing, who worried um, uh, about the lack of of faith, the lack of you know, much too nat- it was seen as too naturalistic. All kinds of complexities in there, mm-hmm. and and for those reasons, uh, the decision was made to to shut down, to shutter the uh, histor- history division, and to again keep the church's focus on collecting preservation. So Leonard Arrington and a number of others um, uh, moved out of, of church employ, and and the, many of them came down to BYU, right. the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute of Church History. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was going on that I think made it even more complicated was that uh, this this was the same time as Mark Hoffman was really active in, in historical document dealing and right, right. so That's the, point. The, 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 I think I think all of this was just was just sort of exacerbating the feeling that history um, was was dangerous was threatening mm, was right, right. was yeah. controversial and. So with every every find that Mark Hoffman was coming out with, it, it just seemed to challenge the the traditional narrative and uh, and and kind of set the historical world on edge. And um, probably as, as most of the, uh, the listeners know, Mark Hoffman's finds were actually forgeries, but that was not discovered until after he'd been really active for over five years. And so that was a, that was a tough period before yeah. it was even suspected that, that anything that he was doing was the result of forgery. Yeah. And so I think all of this um, seemed to uh, argue for a, a little more defensiveness, a little more uh, caution in the approach to history. So I, I think that's that timing is – it also coincides with a, um, a time of – Renewed, a really strong, renewed anti-Mormon sentiment, uh, um, 
perhaps the most successful um, campaign against the church, the Godmakers campaign, that also was was premiering, that that movie was showing in, in churches across the nation uh, in 82, 83, 84. All of this is combining. Another, yeah, to, really uh, important co- contextualization of this, yeah. yeah. So that, I think that gives a sense of the atmosphere and, and the concerns. Yeah. And then um, you talk a little bit of, in your talk about President Hinckley, and, and what did he bring to this um, this yeah. little historical line? I mean, there, there were some some leaders. Marlon Jensen, you, you talk about as well. Can you go there? You bet. I, I think we can't say enough about uh, so, many, so many important figures, but President Hinckley looms really large. So he becomes the president of the church in 1995, someone who had spent his career working for the church uh, he loved history. He, he, as he is writing church materials, uh, film strips, um, missionary pamphlets, he often uh, recreated historical episodes. So this was something I think close to his heart. But the other thing that he he brought was a lifetime's experience in uh, public relations and in public communication. And he was someone who marked the, from the beginning that his administration was going to be characterized by openness. I think the classic moment is when he agrees within the first few months of being president of the church to be interviewed by Mike Wallace right? without any uh, prescripted questions. That's the other thing that's amazing about this. Yes. And and so I think yeah. that signaled to everyone that, that, that there was a different breeze blowing in church headquarters. And so I think that that openness affected all kinds of things, but I, I think it really affected the, the, the way church history was done. Yeah. So then there's also, I think, the 1997, the sesquicentennial wagon train um, just generated so much international attention and, and incredible favorable press. So I think that signaled that, that Mormon history was also an important uh, way of of, of introducing the church there was still really strong interest so all those things i think are combining uh, a new sense of openness and then um, a a new sense of um, possibilities uh, the technology that was coming so in that same year that the sesquicentennial um, in 1997 richard bushman uh, a prominent you know ivy league historian and latter-day saint launched a, a, a new endeavor at BYU, a summer seminar for graduate students to um, research and, and work on Mormon history. And so this was all of these, I think these forces are, are working together to, to, um, to generate change. Fantastic. So I had the privilege of working with um, Richard Bushman at Claremont and benefiting from not only his expertise, um, but also those who attended the summer seminar. I think we really have to look at the influence that Richard Bushman has had, particularly his seminal work, Joseph Smith Rustom Rowling. And I'm wondering if you can just give us some background on him as a scholar and his, his intent with that project and what it has done with this. Um, also, I know that you have you have an expertise in this summer seminar too, so I want to talk about that next. But let's let's look at at first of all the the impact of Richard Bushman just as an individual for a second. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more about just just how seminal uh, Richard Bushman's influence has been, um, and and I think part of this was. Uh, 
you know, experiential empathy. Uh, Richard Bushman has written about his undergraduate experience and going to Harvard and how that was uh, somewhat, you know, more than somewhat, uh, his account, you know, pretty disruptive of his faith and his, you know, his Latter-day Saint upbringing. And and he, so he enters the mission field being called back to New England, ironically, uh, (laughs) but but sort of in a place where he, uh, as he describes it, he he wasn't sure of where he stood in in terms of Mormonism's faith claims. And and it sounds like he had a fantastic mission president who encouraged encouraged him to read the Book of Mormon. And and so this this mission experience, all of that, really solidified his faith. Um, and so he comes back to Harvard, a place where he you know he just was repeatedly challenged and 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 and, and his Mormonism dismissed. But but he was he was solid, he was firm and and and, and unshakable. And so I think he has this experiential empathy that you know he he knows what it feels like to be uh in a, a tough academic intellectual environment with challenges coming from all sides and and he wanted to provide i think uh, throughout his career he seems to have just been this just natural mentor for those who need these conversations and and mm-hmm. and long for these conversations from someone who has been very thoughtful but also very faithful so he, you know, he served in a number of prominent positions as a as as a, a lay leader in the church, as a bishop and a stake president. And so I, I think all of these moments of counseling, both from the ecclesiastical side and the professorial side, I think he just saw how how important the the, the need was for mentors like this. And so combining that with just his his great disposition to to be that kind of mentor he um he also thought uh, uh, about the value of having graduate students who could help him research for this biography Joseph Smith and Rustone Rowling um and and so the summer seminar started um with that kind of initial thrust was that these graduate students would help to compile what they originally called the archive of restoration culture, that they would mine sources and to, to, to recreate this world, this intellectual cultural world of Joseph Smith. Pretty quickly, from all accounts, it sounds like that there was a recognition that the, 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 the archival work was not going to be as important as the actual, um, the power of having a group of graduate students together to to experience serious study of Mormonism in in a way that almost to a person, these early alumni of the seminar describe as something they they had never experienced, mm. and to be able to uh, to to take Richard Bushman's philosophy of um, you know he, this is his mantra we don't go around it we don't go under it we go right through it uh, and and to, to take every issue head on fearlessly. That fearlessness seems to have been what um, what made the seminar what it has become. Fantastic, thank you, um, Richard Bushman's anxiety about trying to introduce Joseph Smith to the church, as well as to his colleagues, I think, is something that 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 goes back to the, his his early time on his mission. He, he talks about trying to articulate and how to explain Joseph Smith. And you see that continue through his whole project of his whole career. And, um, and it, it, we are all part of that project, mm-hmm. right, today, as we're continuing to see this. Um, I find it very interesting that you've, you've focused in on interviewing participants 
in this summer seminar. Can you tell us why you did that and what, what was your motivation for this and perhaps perhaps what you see coming out of this research? What are the implications of your research? Several years ago, and, and I think this became probably apparent to a lot of people, uh, one of the things that was sort of uh, um, a common thread in in some of the rising and um, and now certainly established voices in Mormon history and Mormon studies was that they were alumni of this seminar. Patrick Mason at Claremont was an early uh, an early participant in the seminar. Um, Kathleen Flake was an early participant. Um, David Holland, now at Harvard, an early participant. So as we're looking around, Spencer Fluman, director of the Maxwell Institute, um, as we as you look around, uh, I I just was really struck and taken by this this shared experience that so many of these important voices and uh, important scholars had had. And and I wanted to I wanted to know what what was it what was what was the what was the magic that was happening and I wanted to hear from them um, what what it was like and uh, it it's just been as, as I've interviewed you know several dozen of these alumni from you know from earliest years until recently I had just been so impressed by by the the themes that just keep getting repeated. Uh, the the way that um, the Bushmans and and then others who have led the seminar um, uh, the Givens Terrell and Fiona Givens uh, and I should I want to make sure when I say the Bushmans that we recognize Richard and Claudia, Claudia that Claudia right. has participated as and leading several of these seminars right. very important um, thank and, you uh, and Phil Barlow and others that there's just this this sense that um, it's unspoken there's it's not really made explicit but they're just able to see um, modeled um, the, the important interplay of faith and reason, uh, of faith and intellect, and dedicated disciple scholars, mm. and and it did, they just breathe it in. It just just by osmosis, by being present with them, this this fearlessness, and and Richard Bushman, I think he he's he's put this in such beautiful ways. Is is he? Is, is he, as he has said, um, and he said it much more eloquently as, as everyone in the, who's listening to this can imagine, but he, he said, uh, if you come at this and you want to be an iconoclast, if you want to shock and awe people, if you want to say, here's something you've never heard before, he said, you know, that's, that's not going to go over. It's, uh, if, if it's about you as, as, the, as the scholar who, who wants to somehow gain renown for, for himself or herself, that's going to fall flat. But he says, and this is the part that I love, he says, if you come at this with a pure heart where your desire is to help, your desire is to bring clarity, your desire is to inform and to, and to really benefit and bless others, it, it, will, it will go over. And and I think that's I think that's what we see in the success of his work, and uh, and and I think that's what we see in in all of these scholars that he has mentored is that they they have, as he has said, they have found the voice, and so that they've become they've become important representatives for media outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've become right. important important voices in the academy, and uh, have have are making a, a huge impact in their publications and in, and in classrooms across the country. And and so I, I think we're we're seeing this, the the shaping effect, the ripple effect of of this seminar um, that is just just having a huge impact on on the church and those who are interested in it. Yeah. 
So when you mentioned Claudia, it reminds me of her, one of the projects that she started at Claremont was the Mormon Women's Oral History Project. And I think she helped a number of us understand the power of oral history and hearing the voices of people that aren't being heard at times. And that's really the media that you're using, really one of your really important tools in this project is oral history. So you're creating an archive that's going to be, that's gold, right, with these um, interviews, as well as under, helping us understand ourselves at the current moment a little bit better. What are you planning to do with this project? Really good question. Uh, I think that was my first motivation was just to get these stories recorded. Uh, I'm, again, kind of in that feeling of, or that interest in what does it feel like right now? I mean, what, what is, what's the, what's the temperature, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what, uh, what is, what does it feel like to be engaged in this work at a, at a really, really pivotal time, a a, a really, I think we'll look back and see that this is, we're in a a crucial time, an axial moment, some people have described it. So I I, I thought, let's get some stories while it's still relatively fresh. I'd love to know how it feels to be um, involved in this. And that's also been a main driver um, as I've been interviewing and expanded this oral history project to uh, to important scholars who are doing Mormon women's history right now. Is, uh, and, I, and I think we're seeing exciting things with institutional support of, of that. Uh, so what does it feel like to be in these positions? Um, I've... Uh, I've been grateful to be able to do, uh, you know, some conference presentations and papers based on this, um, and uh, my hope is uh, th- th- to to work this into a, a book, um, uh, a book that that traces the the history of of Mormon history since the early 1980s, kind of a case study approach that that seeks to get at that question of how did we get here and and where's our things going and what does it feel like to be where we are now. Great. I have you on record now as saying <laughs> <laughs> there's a book coming out of this eventually. Um, eventually might be the key word. Thank right, you. Right. Right. No, this is a – I think it's a great project. And I've, I've heard you present on this at MHA, and, and I'm excited about it. I think you're finding things and making connections that are extremely helpful for us. Thanks, Donald. Um, I also want to just – this is my own – um, interest. I missed the actual Wheatley address that you mm. gave. And so can you, for our listeners, as well as for my own benefit, kind of give us a wrap up of, of what you what was your main takeaway of that talk specifically? What bring us to the conclusion to what you wanted the students to hear from that? I think the thing that impresses me so much is that this is um, is that this feeling of fearlessness, this feeling of transparency, this feeling of openness, this feeling that we don't have anything to fear in history, in, in the church's history, and, and we can look at everything, you know, and go right at the heart of it, the Richard Bushman philosophy, that that is the philosophy that has won the day, you know, and that, that really is... That, that this is not just the um, sort of an outline approach of a scholarly community, but this is really the the right way to do history as Mormons. And to kind of paraphrase Elder Jensen, 
Elder Jensen, Marlon K. Jensen, uh, is another pivotal figure that, that we've already alluded to. But when President Hinckley appoints him to be the church historian, I mean, they were they just seem to be kindred spirits. That Elder Jensen embodied the sense of openness that uh, that President Hinckley just stood for. And Rick Turley is another huge, pivotal figure that we should mention who had, had been um, a, a managing director at the history department since the 80s. Right. And he really came in at this right. crucial time and, and uh, laid so much groundwork. Um, I think the thing we can't miss mentioning for him is that he sought out and received permission uh, in very early in the 2000s to write the Mountain Meadows Massacre book, and a pivotal book that he and Ron Walker and Glenn Leonard wrote, three church employees writing about probably the darkest episode in the church's history, but it passes muster with Oxford University Press. I mean, this, these are, are, the, are some of the signals, the bellwethers of change. So we have all of these forces, these individuals who have shared this philosophy and that really has become, I think, the, the endorsed, approved, official approach of the church. So it, it's, it's this interesting balance. This is, I think, a balance that we we talk about a lot with our students. On the one hand, you know, there had been the church that had published in its official magazines um, uh, articles about the first vision accounts in 1970, in 1985, 1996. So these were things that the church had had um, published. The elder Nelson, Russell M. Nelson, in July 1993, Enzyme quotes David Whitmer's account about Joseph Smith using the seer stone to translate right, in the hat. Right. Yeah. So, so on the one hand, these things had been there. They had been in even in official church publications. But on the other hand, and I think like the church's spokesman, Michael Otterson, Elder Ballard, admitted that, that in some ways our curriculum had, had not prepared students for this moment and that they had been a, in some ways lacking or, or maybe not as complete as it could have been. And so I, the thing that really impresses me is that now openness, transparency, historical fearlessness, that's the order of the day. And so back to what we we're saying about Elder Jensen, as he closed his time as the church historian, he spoke to the Mormon Historical Association and he said that he was really grateful that we had been able to be so historically open because the Holy Ghost bears witness of truth. And right. then he said, you know, the internet probably ma- would have mandated transparency anyway, but he said, but this is the right way to do our history. Love it. And yeah. I, I, th- I think that's the exciting thing um, is that uh, we are at that place and that we are seeing apostolic endorsement of this. And I, I think it, it should be exciting and encourages all of us to try on that same kind of fearlessness. Yes, thank you. Um, With my involvement with oral history interviews, I tend to have interviews and quotes that I just love Mm. and I always go back to. Do you have any of those that you can think of that you want to share that are particular gems of your oral history collection, perhaps? Um, And and I'll let you kind of think about that for a minute. Also, in terms of what you've learned in general, what are some big takeaways from this project, from talking and thinking and and really immersing yourself in this project. Steve Harper said this. He said, in in, in talking about Richard Busham being a father figure to him, I I love this statement. He is a father figure to a hundred people like me. What I mean to say is that he is like this with lots and lots of people. 
And David Holland, who's now at the Harvard Divinity School, said, it is not an exaggeration, it is not hyperbole to say that he is the reason I am a historian today. David Holland again. um, I'm convinced that there is a whole generation of Latter-day Saint scholars who owe their careers really to this seminar and what it represents. Okay, so JV, what are the big takeaways from this, from your research, and that we can learn from from what you're working on here? Of course, the historian will say this, but that I think history is really important. Perhaps the biggest thing that I would say is is exciting and, and excitement. I think everyone should feel excitement. That that's why I. I, you know, put in the title, More Interesting Than Ever, because I I think there should be a feeling of excitement that, uh, that the enthusiasm for, for all that's going on, for all the study that's possible. Yeah. The other thing that, um, that uh, Patrick Mason said in Planted, um, just such a a great book, and, and, you know, and I think Patrick is another one of these who, who just represents all that's best about what's going on in Mormon history. He had this great line where he said, don't let the first thing you read about something be the last thing you read. Mm, and, right. and I think he, I think that encapsulates the best advice about what is going on is that there is so much source material now, but not all of it is of the equal value. And, right. and, and a lot of it requires deeper study. And, and so to, to think of the admonition of... You know the the doctrine and covenants to to seek learning by study and by faith to uh, to really be excited about that study aspect and to not give up too early not right. to not to make as Patrick said the first thing you read about something the last thing you read right or don't study church history too little A- amen right? amen right. and to yeah. take advantage and to really pay attention to all the church resources that are that are out there and and to see all that that signals about the church's encouragement for Latter-day Saints to be actively involved in in the reading and and absorbing and loving of church history. This has been a fantastic conversation and really helpful in in understanding this moment. I think sometimes we wait for history to be written 25 years after the fact, right? Whereas what you're doing is is helping us. It's you're you're creating history, you're commenting on history but also helping us understand the moment and I think that helps us understand who we are and what we we can do. And I would just put out a call to our our listeners here too. Those of you I know we we go globally. And those of you who care about this history, gather it, tell it, share it, write it, right? This is an important work, and and this is what this moment is about. Hear, hear. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices. 